Hello and welcome back to the Shakespeare Birthday Party. I'm Danny Fitzpatrick. And I'm Grace Fitzpatrick. And today we will be discussing Richard II at long last. At great length, we have made our way through Richard II. Um, we have just moved, so that explains much of the delay. Although it should be said that with some of these historical plays, we found it slow going at times, perhaps less compelling, partly because uh, many of them are quite confusing in some respects. Uh, that's partly our own doing because we've gone about the historical plays out of order. Um, but basically, what this play, I won't go into all the intricacies of the plot, but essentially it concerns the question of kingship um, and what are the real sources of authority. So Richard II is on the throne. Um, his father, Edward the Black Prince, um, died before his grandfather died. So Richard II inherits the throne basically from his grandfather. Um, he's very big on the divine right of his kingship um, and emphasizes that quite a bit. Um, and he often comes off as fairly tyrannous. So we see this at the beginning of the play when there is an argument between uh, Henry Bolingbroke um, who is Richard's cousin, uh, and Sir Thomas Mowbray. Um, Bolingbroke has accused Mowbray of treason. Uh, Richard II banishes them both in a somewhat despotic uh, display of his power. Um, he then uh, proceeds to seize Bolingbroke's um, inheritance after Bolingbroke's father, John of Gaunt, dies. Um, then, partially funded by this inheritance, Richard II goes to uh, make war in Ireland. Uh, while he is gone, Bolingbroke returns, um, basically lays claim to power. Uh, he so overwhelms Richard, at least, that Richard cedes power to him. Um, in the end, Richard II is killed by one of Bolingbroke's, uh, now King Henry IV's, um, overzealous followers. Um, and at the end of the play, Bolingbroke, King Henry IV, makes plans to make a, uh, to launch a crusade as a means of atoning for his sins. Forecasting a lot of the kind of character that we that we'll see in Henry the Fourth on full display in the two plays uh, of his name. So, Grace, I don't know if you have any uh, any thoughts you want to get us going with as far as the discussion. Yes, well, just to uh, return to your initial point about the play, uh, this play definitely reminded me of the end of the Pink Panther movie when <laughs> Jacques uh, Clouseau is so exasperated you know he's been framed for stealing this diamond the Pink Panther and he's exasperated by all the uh, people trying to figure out you know how did he steal it how did he steal it he finally just gets too tired of saying that he didn't steal it and he just responds you know well 
it wasn't easy. <laughs> um, so we read this play, indeed, but it was not easy. It yes. was over a very long period of very time. Very long period of time. So, you know, that has its benefits to, you know, taking a slow pace versus rushing through something. And I, I did appreciate, even though we're reading things not necessarily chronologically at all, um, I did appreciate kind of knowing where things are going, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, it's a little bit depressing knowing that things will continue to get worse. Yes. Um, I don't know that a whole lot of problems get solved in this play or are going to be avoided in the future. So maybe maybe that was intentional on Shakespeare's part to uh, just reflect on the monarchy or the state of England historically and uh, contemporaneous with himself. Um... But yeah, I was, I I read about this really interesting notion of tragedy that was popularized in the Renaissance. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say initiated, but definitely popularized by Giovanni Boccaccio in his work, De Cassibus, what was it? De Cassibus Virorum Illustrium, um, which is basically this collection of stories of uh, great men in history and legend, um, and what they all have, what all these men have in common is that they once occupied a place of great prominence in society, and then came uh, approached a great downfall. Um, so it's really interesting to think about why each of these men experienced a tragic downfall, and even more interesting, I would argue, to see how they each individually responded uh, to their downfalls. You know, did they remain the great and noble men that everyone thought they were, they seemed to be, or did they turn into beasts in response to uh, their lack of prominence? So that's an interesting thing to consider with Richard II because he even brings up... uh, how he's just, you know, on fortune's wheel. And that is a big part of the De Cassibus mm-hmm. uh, stories. You know, it's not necessarily a fate thing like you might think of in, uh, in some Greek tragedies mm-hmm. or even mm-hmm. in Anglo-Saxon poetry. You know, fate plays a big part. Um, but there is certainly an element there of my choices, my actions have consequences. And if I choose a good thing, then maybe good things will happen. If I choose a bad thing, bad things will happen. Uh, De Cassibus is more about you're on the wheel of fortune and you're high at one point in your life and then you're low at another point in your life. And so this sometimes happen even, it happens even to great men, even to divinely appointed men like kings in the English monarchy. Uh, so Richard frequently... Uh, or at least explicitly, refers to himself as being on the Wheel of Fortune. He talks about himself as being uh, Phaeton, uh, who tragically fell out of the chariot in the sky. And just like you were saying, Danny, he does uh, have this very, you know, the most romantic view of himself as king, uh, which is not <laughs> does not contribute to his likability, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, yeah, so that's just an that's just an interesting thing that that really struck me reading, reading this play this time around. Yeah, and it'll be interesting later. So, I mean, later in the historical sequence, we'll see someone like Henry V, who is 
not very kingly until he becomes king. Um, and it's there's a way in which the the office can um, exert itself on the character of its holder. Um, but there are also people like Richard who seem to be grasping at the power of the office mm-hmm. um, without actually having it. Um, or at least without having it impressed upon them in some way. And then we'll see someone like Richard III who um, is the most... Uh, awesome king. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in his way. Um, <laughs> the most power-hungry um, and yet has, um, yeah, really has, he's almost kind of like a, like a Nietzschean king in a sense that he's just, he's not really concerned with, uh, with God or anything else, uh, other than himself. I wonder if Nietzsche ever wrote about Shakespeare. I wonder if he liked Shakespeare. I don't know. Or anything good. Yeah. It is interesting also how the... Like, I would say in Greek drama, and maybe this is coming partly from Homer, where the fates and the gods are, like, immensely present at every turn. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's interesting about Shakespeare is, like, even even in plays where God is very present in some way or another... Um, it is uh things do come down so much to just human choices Mm. so like in i don't know like in homer which of course we're not we're not talking about drama there specifically but homer is so there's so much of a sense that things are fated one way or another um and that even the gods who are working on behalf of, or like working in the interests of many of the heroes among men, um, even the gods themselves are still under the sway of fate. Um, there's much less sense of that kind of like looming fatedness, I think, in Shakespeare's drama. Mm-hmm. Which I think is part of what makes it so dramatic a lot of times. Like we, like we have a sen- like a very clear sense that like, Othello didn't have to kill Desdemona um, and that if things, if he had just made certain choices a little bit differently, that things would have been very different. Mm-hmm. Whereas sometimes it's like it's like if we, if we look at something like Oedipus Rex there's a way in which part of the, the drama and tragedy they play is not so much a sense that uh, Oedipus could have chosen differently, which of course there is the thought that like if he had just like not set out to try to avoid uh, killing his father and marrying his mother, he wouldn't have done those things. But there's almost a sense that like fate was so overwhelmingly against him mm-hmm. in those things that his tragedy was just like being who he was and being uh being led sort of inexorably toward that pass 
Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because I felt again and again reading this play that this, at least like the characters in it, seem like a very godless people. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So it's, yeah. Maybe, I mean, perhaps that's, that's part of the brilliance of the play is that the characters, you know, supposedly believe in this divinely endowed monarchy. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got a lot of, you know, epic potential there with, uh, I don't know, with all of that. Uh, But at the same time, it's very petty. You know, all the relationships. People swear loyalty one day and then they're Mm -hmm. uh, betraying that loyalty within a half hour. Um, It doesn't seem like anybody is truly, truly loyal um, to anyone but himself in this play. And yet we still have this character who has this, you know, beautifully uh, sort of classic fall in a way. yeah. Um, you were talking some about uh, earlier about Richard, sort of both the way he's been portrayed, but then also um, sort of the weakness of his character compared to the like sort of divine right aspiration mm-hmm. that he has. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about some of the portrayals of him and how that. Uh, doesn't seem necessarily to square with his manner of death. Sure, yeah. So, throughout the play, it's no secret. Like, he seems kind of like a lame sauce king. Not very likable at all. He's taxing people. He's sending people off to die. Um, he's just, he's really banking on the whole divine appointment thing to guarantee everybody's loyalty. Mm-hmm. And shocker of shockers that doesn't work mm-hmm. um and i know i read that uh this is more explicit in like christopher marlowe's play about richard the second um but there are rumors out there that he was homosexual mm. and that might have been you know why he was airless um might have you know there is that uh i guess impl- historical implication there like well if he's homosexual that means he's womanish and if he's mm-hmm. womanish then he's weak mm-hmm. and so the uh, like there are three major modern portrayals of him that really uh, play on this there is an Ian McKellen performance in 1971 I believe where he plays Richard as being very effeminate and then there is another one maybe in the 90s with I believe Fiona Branch who plays kind of an androgynous Richard II. And then very recently, uh, there is a Kate Blanchett performance, and she plays Richard II as a woman. So again, I haven't seen any of these performances, but these you know choices, these directorial choices, seem to indicate that Richard is either a homosexual or he is just not male, not masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not strong, he's weak, which really just kind of grinds my gears because you know you look at something like Coriolanus Coriolanus's mom I would not like she is a woman but mm-hmm. I would not describe her as being womanish you know yeah. yeah um so I don't think this is something that Shakespeare was trying to imply like I don't think he was he was trying to imply like oh well Richard II was just a weak king and then he died mm-hmm. um especially when you consider 
you know, what you're talking about earlier with this De Casibos tragedy, uh, you know, how does Richard respond when he's no longer king of the world? Uh, you know, he goes off and is imprisoned. And then the last time we see him, he dies. But he doesn't just die, okay? Mm-hmm. So he has this group of men come to come to kill him. And instead of being a scared, you know, dare I say, effeminate womanish man, he uh, is able to defend himself and, you know, go out with his boots on. So I think there's something to be said for his character there. I think that Shakespeare didn't want us, didn't want to leave us with this idea of, oh, well, Richard II, he was a weak king, and then there was another guy. Um, Interestingly enough, though, uh, I did read about other performances where uh, the actors who play Richard and Bolingbroke will alternate nights as if to say it doesn't matter who's king and Mm. who's usurper um they're all the same so that's yeah i think that's more interesting honestly yeah um i don't again i don't know if that's what shakespeare was trying to imply i think he is very concerned with the individuals Mm -hmm. um but i thought that was a cool idea um yeah yeah um as very interesting how this Piers Exton, who kills, ultimately kills Richard II. Um, I thought there was kind of a parallel between him and... Uh, it was just making me think of uh, Blackadder, when uh, those guys coming back from the Crusades hear the king uh, repeating the words of... Is it Henry II? Henry II. Who... Uh, is sick of, uh, I guess, uh, Thomas the Beckett, yes, yeah, Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah. <laughs> He's asking if someone would rid him of this meddlesome priest, uh-huh. tiresome priest, uh, which was kind of what happened with uh, Sir Pierce here, where he, uh, yeah, he overheard King Henry uh, saying he wished somebody would get rid of, uh, get rid of Richard, and so that's what he went and did. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because Richard II is surely no Thomas a Becket. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, Definitely not. But it is pretty fishy that that's uh, the, a very similar circumstance. Yeah. Yeah, So for I sure. wonder if maybe Shakespeare heard about that and was like, oh, that's a cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great... That would make a great story. Right. Um, so yeah. that's kind of a cool look into his, his writer's process. Yeah. Well, and it is... It's kind of what sets so much of the rest of the historical story in motion just with Henry the fourth feeling this remorse mm. um, and wanting to make launch his crusade to help uh, make up for it do you buy his remorse um, I don't know uh, I think in some ways Yes. Um, just because I don't know that it would be such a such a light thing to want to launch a crusade. Um, I mean, he. I think in some ways, it, there's a 
there's a way in which like true remorse shouldn't need to be just like trying to buy your way out by launching a crusade or doing something like that but I don't know that he would do that just as like a uh, some sort of means of of uh, simply buying his way out of a true reckoning with things. Well, I think by now we've read enough historical plays to know that the kings of England don't really care about bloodshed <laughs> um, necessarily. True. So, I mean, I buy his political remorse, mm-hmm. but did it really cost him personally anything to send send people out on a crusade? I mean, when you think about... I mean, going back to the Thomas Beckett, Henry II story, Mm -hmm. you know, Henry II, to show his remorse, was willing to stand in the snow for four days, personally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like that is more believable. I mean, whether or not he actually (laughs) turned out to be a great guy. But uh, I think anybody in in that circumstance can say... No, let's let's do a crusade mm-hmm. as penance. Yeah, uh, it's for like sure. I don't really buy that as personal. Yeah, personally penitential. Also, I do think a crusade is a great way to distract people. Yeah. Um, so they might be thinking like, oh, well, Henry said that he would let Richard II live, and just sort of ignore him until mm-hmm. his natural death. But all yeah. of a sudden, he's dead now. So does that make our new king a liar? That could you know, bring into question his actual kingship. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it was a very smart political move for him to mm. call up a new crusade. Yeah. Uh, show what a great guy he was. He had his priorities straight. Mm-hmm. Um, also, just the excitement of the crusade. Get people distracted that way. Right. They're staying away from Ireland, which is what the last guy had them <laughs> go do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah, who, sure. doesn't, who doesn't love a good crusade? Yeah. So... I don't know. That's difficult to say. I'm pretty jaded by this point <laughs> uh, about the kings of England, if you couldn't tell. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Well, and and I wonder partly if like maybe some, some element of his true remorse is like a, an increased awareness of the gravity of the kingship that, uh, like when you're when you're the king of England, you really need to be careful about what you say because just idly venting your exasperation about your political enemy uh, can sometimes result in somebody taking your words too much to heart and going and killing people. So I wonder if there's at least a sense of uh, the heaviness of the crown. Yeah, I think... I, I mean, I buy that for sure. Like, he definitely is aware that he wields significant power and influence and you see that later when he recognizes that his own son you know does not understand that until he becomes king Mm -hmm. um so i think he's he's aware of the heft of his position yeah um but i don't i wouldn't trust him farther than i could throw him i think he's a usurper through and through indeed they all are (laughs) indeed yeah, which I think is going to be one of the issues that Henry V has to deal with is the fact of his inherited throne's original usurpation. Yeah. But at any rate, um, one of the one of the most important sort of poetic moments in 
this play is uh, one of Sir John of Gaunt's speeches when he's talking about England, um, which pretty much everyone will recognize this, but uh, it's worth perhaps without knowing where it came from. But um, so here it is. This royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection in the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves it in the office of a wall, or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. So obviously very famous speech there. Um, But it also, I mean, it gets at so much of the English spirit in many senses, like a lot of the, um, a lot of the sort of myth of England itself that has helped it to endure uh, through centuries, um, and especially in a lot of the conflicts of the 20th century. Yeah, England really is the realm that never fell. Yeah. And that's not without its consequences. Yeah. As we can see. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I guess that's like, that's part that comes up a lot in, uh, in Shakespeare's place. I mean, even in Cymbeline, there's a kind of sense of like the, the inability even of Rome as uh, imperial master to Britain not quite being able to mm. uh, to lord it over Britain in the way that it could with other places yeah and it makes me makes me wonder what Shakespeare would have thought of something like America I don't know Goodness gracious, we'll have to ask him in heaven yeah. someday. Yeah. I'm sure this, he has this thoughts. little world. <laughs> America's not that. At any rate, um, I think next time we said we're going to read the Comedy of Errors. Is that Let's right? Let's do it. Excellent. Very good. Can we'll we use the comedy yes. now. Yes. We all. <laughs> Very good. Well, we will see y'all next time. Until then. Party on.